Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today is the Feast of the Holy Name of Jesus. It is the octave day also of um, St. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, but the Feast of the Holy Name today takes precedence over that octave uh, and also over the Sunday uh, because this is such an important day. It is a day that is connected to yesterday, which was the uh, Feast of the Circumcision of Christ, who eight days after he was born, so eight days after Christmas, is ritually um, uh, follows the old law and is uh, circumcised in order to uh, show in his flesh that he belongs to this family of um, the tribe of Judah. And this is a covenant that is actually not, it wasn't Jewish, it wasn't just for the tribe of Judah, it was for all of Israel. And it actually goes back before Israel, it goes back to Abraham himself. And it was a sign of the covenant God made with Abraham to show that he was um, cutting off of himself and his life all impurity and that he belonged solely to God. It was a mark that distinguished him and his whole family and the tribe of um, uh, his sons and then all of their children to come after them, to mark them out from others in the world. And so at this eighth day after the birth of Christ, he participates that in that and sheds his blood uh, for the first time since uh, his incarnation, since he's born. And so on this day, he also receives the name that the angel instructed Joseph to give to him. An angel of the Lord came to Joseph before, um, before Mary had given birth and reassured him that the child growing in Mary's womb was of the Holy Spirit and that he didn't need to divorce Mary or put her away, but that this was going to be a special child. It was going to be the promised child from the prophecy in Isaiah, um, Emmanuel, God with us. But the angel didn't tell him to name the child Emmanuel, he told him to name him Jesus. Now this name Jesus means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. And it's the same name of Joshua, the man who succeeded Moses and led the people out of the desert and into the promised land. So you have this name of a man, which is Yahweh, the name of our God, is our salvation. He saves us. And this man is the one who leads people out of wilderness, which is death, essentially, into the promised land, which is life. And so this new child growing in Mary's womb is to have that name and to hearken to that role, that role of a man who will lead his people out of death into life, and he is salvation. So the name Jesus, even though it's uh, in our English Bibles, it has a strange history of translation we have two names now, Joshua and Jesus in English. But in Hebrew and in Aramaic, they were the same name. So this is the name that we celebrate today. And why do we celebrate the name of Jesus? Well, because names are powerful things. One of the first things that God instructed us to do as human beings when he put us in the garden was to name things. So what's in a name? Why is naming something so important? Because a name signifies the nature of a thing. We, we in the West now have, have a habit of not attaching much significance to words. Um, 
there's a whole philosophy that just says words don't mean anything. They're just signifiers of a, a thing, but they don't, they don't have anything in themselves. They don't actually tell us anything real. They're just sounds, and we just all agree on what the sounds mean when I, you know, point to floor. That's, we all know what we're walking on because we all have the same word for floor. But there's more to a floor than just F-L-O-O-R, right? There's, I mean, it's, it's the ground. It's the thing beneath our feet. It's the thing that holds us up. It's a steady, you know, there, concepts and names are interrelated and concepts are bigger and, and deeper and more real than just um, a group of sounds that helps us all look to the same thing when we, you know, say the word out loud. And the ancient people knew this. Names meant something and they, they were powerful things. And so when Adam was naming animals, what he was doing was recognizing the ontology of a thing and giving it, giving speech to it. And so human names do the same thing. Names are so important in the Bible. Most of the names we read, we, we miss it a lot of times because we don't know Hebrew and we have to look it up, you know, but most of the names we read mean something. My name, Stephen, whose octave day is, is today, uh, I, I'm named after the saint. His name means a, a crown or a reward. And there's no end of creative uh, hymnology about him because he was the first martyr. And so he earned his martyr's crown. The crown uh, talked about in the letters of St. Paul and Peter, the crown of life. Um, and so his, his name, meaning a reward, is connected to his deed and his role, and now part of his ongoing eternal ontology as the proto-martyr, you know? And so names are important things. And St. Paul tells us that Jesus' name is above every other name in all of creation, not just English names or Greek or Hebrew, but maybe even every name, definitely every name in the language of heaven, whatever that is, the language of the angels. The name above every name in all of creation, angels and the heavenly bodies, uh, powers included, is the human name given to God incarnate. And I love that this name, which rises above ontologically everything in all of creation, was a human name. It was the first time he heard it, it would have been an Aramaic, Yeshua. Yeshua. I'm not sure what the pronunciation would be. Um, but then that name spread, and in Greek it, be, it became uh, Jesus. In English, finally, it became Jesus. In Latin, Jesu. And this name is a name that we can speak with our own mouths. Our tongues can pronounce it. And it's the name that not only is, is attached to uh, kind of tangentially, but is really attached to God incarnate. It really belongs to him. In fact, it has become part of him. The second person of the Trinity, the word of God, now has a human name. I don't think we appreciate fully the significance of that, especially now that Jesus Christ has become a byword among us uh, in our culture. Turn on any movie or TV program, and someone will probably just rattle off that holy name as if it's a curse word or an exasperation. Um, every, every time that's been done, I think people will answer for that 
in eternity and will, um, I like to think, have to repeat that name by giving up praise to Christ in order to, to expunge their casual and um, impious use of Jesus' name. There's a wonderful hymn that we're going to sing as sort of our departing hymn today. It began just as a little poem uh, written in a book of poems for children struggling with illness by a lady, um, an Anglican lady, who also struggled with illness for a long, long time. Uh, she wrote a lot in her early years, teenage and early 20s, and then she uh, became ill and didn't write for a long time until finally uh, decided, I'll, I'll try writing again uh, as a way to help myself and also help others struggling with illness. And so she penned a, a lot of poems, and one of them um, we now know as the hymn, At the Name of Jesus. It was by far her most popular, and it entered into a lot of uh, hymn books in the 1800s and, and through the 1900s. And it's a beautiful hymn, um, not least because it's so biblical. <laughs> but the way she writes this hymn is that she takes the name of Jesus. And uh, with that, it, it becomes sort of a poetical device for, um, for the incarnation. And so she says, Jesus is the word who was, you know, uh, before all time, who was, you know, not incarnate, who was God unincarnated, who then entered into time and became incarnate for our sake. And so the name Jesus functions in this hymn as sort of a, a poetic device talking about his incarnation. And I just want to go through it because it tells the story so perfectly and, and connects the name of Jesus with the entire story of our salvation, God's incarnation and our salvation. It's in our hymn books. Um, the first stanza goes, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess him king of glory now. Tis the Father's pleasure we should call him Lord, who from the beginning was the mighty word. The first two lines of this hymn are nearly a direct uh, quotation from Philippians 2, 10 through 11. Um, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. That's from St. Paul. And the title, King of Glory, comes from Psalm 24. And these lines confess with St. Paul the awful mystery of the Incarnation by foretelling one of its inevitable consequences, that eventually all of creation will recognize this one Lord and will reverence his human name. Every knee shall bow in all of creation. The third line reminds us of the two great theophanies of the Gospels, one of which we'll be celebrating uh, later this week on Thursday, the Feast of Epiphany. And then there's also the instance of the uh, transfiguration on the mountain where the voice of the Father himself is heard saying, this is my beloved Son, I'm well pleased with him, listen to him. But tis the Father's pleasure that we should call him Lord, who from the beginning was the mighty word. That fourth line makes the crucial confession that the Son who is affirmed by the Father here before men is the same person as the mighty Logos, the Word, that ordering, governing, foundational, creative principle and ground of existence by which all things came into being, what we say in our creed. All things that were created were created through Him. Um, and this essential Christian confession is here used as also the starting point of the narrative of the Incarnation, which the hymn goes on to recount. So the hymn goes, humbled for a season to receive a name, 
from the lips of sinners unto whom he came. The first words of the second stanza observe two things, that the mighty word was humbled and that it was for a season. Though he wasn't permanently humbled, it was um, humbled within a story with a beginning, middle, and an end. You know, it's, it's a narrative humbling. Uh, it, it had a purpose. There was a motion to it. It goes down, then it goes back up. He humbled or emptied himself. This is clearly taught by St. Paul, again from Philippians 2, um, because how else do you describe the uncreated putting on created nature? God truly becoming man. But this humbling was only for a season because the whole point of God stooping to the lowest depths of human condition was to raise humanity back up to God. Thus, no one ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's from John 3.13. Here in the first and second lines of the stanza, um, are, we're, we're reminded that the name Jesus was received only when the word of God became flesh and from his own sinful creatures at that. Now, we in the Orthodox Church believe that Mary was without personal sin, but she was still a creature and when he was given the name, it was given by St. Joseph, uh, the guardian of Mary and of Jesus. And so uh, this, this was a man who, though righteous, um, was, you know, tasted sin, knew our condition, and yet God humbles himself to be a baby and receives his name from St. Joseph. The angel didn't come and say, his name is Jesus, but he came to Joseph and said, give him the name Jesus. So God receives his name from his sinful creatures. This is amazing. The name um, Jesus, like our human nature that he took on, is now born by God himself, perfectly and spotlessly, all the way into death in Hades. And so the last couple lines of that second stanza, faithfully he bore it, spotless to the last, and brought it back victorious when from death he passed. So this is describing Jesus not only taking on our humanity, but also the name that we give him and bearing both his humanity and his name spotless. No sin, perfect righteousness, perfect obedience to God, takes his humanity and his name down into hell, preaches and rescues those who have been trapped there, breaks the doors of Hades, and then bears it back up in his resurrection and eventually in his ascension, which is what the third stanza talks about. He bore it up triumphant with its human light through all ranks of creatures to the central height, to the throne of Godhead, to the Father's breast, filled it with the glory of that perfect rest. The third stanza describes the ascension of Jesus through all ranks of creatures to the central height. The upward movement is a continuation of the return journey from the depths of Sheol now up through the taxonomy of all created things. And at the highest height in the center of all things, the ultimate peak is the place where God dwells, um, the throne of the Father. The mountaintop imagery of this spiritual reality has been used before, notably by St. Ephraim the Syrian in the fourth century in his Hymns on Paradise, which is a beautiful book. And uh, it's available for cheapish on Amazon. I think everyone should pick up a copy and read it because it is a revelation into um, the, the mind of the early church and it's uh, the way paradise was conceived of. Anyway, so the name um, that he bears with him in his ascension, it's still that human name, Jesus, 
and he fills it with perfect rest, with uh, which it's not this passive inactivity, but it's the complete fulfillment of all that human nature can attain to, perfect union and communion with identity, uh, uh, divinity. It's the kind of rest that God does on the seventh day of creation. God doesn't sit down and go, whew, that was a lot of work. What God does when he rests on the seventh day is he takes up his seat and reigns. All things being completed, now God sits on his throne and reigns in this temple garden of all creation that he's just made. That's what Jesus does. The perfect rest is not recovery from exertion. <laughs> it is it, it's fullness expanding into all that has been conquered now. This is what Jesus does when he rises to his ascension and sits at the uh, right hand of the Father. Now, the process of um, becoming like God, of being filled with God, like God fills all of creation, we can already start to participate in that. This is what St. Peter talks about in um, Peter 1.4, 2 Peter 1.4, becoming partakers of that divine nature. In the process of becoming more and more united with the divine, called theosis, uh, is well defined in, in the church and the fathers and the saints. And the reason we are able to partake at all of God and to go on partaking is because Jesus, uniting his divinity with our humanity and then redeeming our humanity from death and then raising our humanity to the height of the throne of God, has transformed our humanity and enabled us to participate in a boundless potential for union with God. Finally, the fourth stanza turns from confession to instruction. It goes, In your hearts enthrone him. Let him there subdue all that is not holy and all that is not true. Crown him as your captain in temptation's hour. Let his will enfold you in its light and power. The stanza answers not the question of the entitled churchgoer, how does this apply to my life? But rather, the convicted sinner, what must I do to be saved? If Jesus is already enthroned in heaven and will one day command the reverence of all creation, where every knee will bow, then we must anticipate that reality now in our own hearts by enthroning him there, here, submitting to his purifying work of subduing whatever is found within us that isn't good and true. We must learn to turn to and rely on him at all times, especially in the trying and tempting times. The will that is the way of Jesus has been filled with his light and power. That way includes the death of our unruly and rebellious wills and egos, but it's also the only way that follows in his luminous footsteps to the central height where our nature now will find its only fulfillment, peace, and joy so that we can participate in that rest. Not the, oh, thank goodness that's over. I can kick back, but the, I am now the fullest I can ever be. So Caroline Maria Noel was the name of the lady who wrote this in 1861. And um, it doesn't really matter, frankly, who it came from because the final product is uh, a wonderful poetic reminder of the story of the incarnation, um, uh, uh, a reminder to us to live according to the truth of that story, 
but also uh, a, a teaching uh, tool to, to tell us what the name of Jesus is all about. The name of Jesus is about God participating in our life and letting our life be brought up, drawn up into God. Again, so much of this uh, is about the ascension, and it seems weird to talk about that now when we're still in the Christmas season. But this is all one motion, remember. The ascension, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. We're now in this part of the year where we're talking about the descent from heaven to earth. But we have the benefit of hindsight knowing that that descent was for the purpose of the ascent. Not just so Christ could go back, but so that he could bring us with him. And he does that by bringing our human nature, a body, a resurrected body, but he brings our body with him. He brings a name in our tongue, our word, with him up to the throne of God, the Father himself. This is, I didn't grow up thinking about the fact that Jesus is still incarnate. He's in heaven with a body. <laughs> when St. Stephen is about to be stoned to death, and he looks up and sees the heavens parted, he sees Jesus standing at the throne, at the right hand of the Father, about to welcome him in. Jesus, there with his body, his face, and his name. That's incredible. So that's what we celebrate today. The name of Jesus means the humanity of Jesus. We're celebrating the name given to him that will conquer all evil in the world and every knee, willingly or unwillingly, will bow to him. And that is an encouraging thought for us this morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.